You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. Most of mine was doom watching that submarine Titanic thing, not gonna lie. Despite the questionable priorities and negligence and what have you. I was also supposed to go out and meet with some coworkers the other night, but was reminded that I'm in my 30s and arguably watch too much true crime, and they're in their 20s and don't do that because instead of them knowing where they were or like where they'd gone. They just sent me a location tag and was like, we're here. Come to here. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm old. I'm not going to do that. So I went home and read a book. But there was a fun reminder that I, in fact, am a half generation older than these people. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got No Hard Feelings. Now, I mean, a lot of us have been saying, like, this is a weird choice for Jennifer Lawrence to do. And, you know, given that she got world famous by doing dramas, you might think that. But she's actually pretty funny. She actually started with more comedic backgrounds. And as long as you go into this movie with not a lot of expectations, I think you'll like it. It's not, again, it's not anything that's going to change your life. It's not bad. I, I enjoyed it. I didn't feel like I wasted my time seeing it. It's very raunchy, but it's not in a gratuitous manner for the most part, in my opinion anyway, but I have a high bar for that. And overall, it's fine. It's not, like I said, not going to change your life. It's not going to bring people back to the theaters to see comedy films, which is a shame, but it is funny. It's not what the studios need to bring people back to the theaters to see comedies, which, by the way, if you're curious, is a problem. So if you want to kind of fuel the box office and talk with your money, if you like comedy films, that would be a place to consider doing it. They're they're hurting real bad. And speaking of comedies, Asteroid City is pretty great, so maybe you maybe go see that. I don't know. Couple of updates on the strike front, mainly one. The DGA contract has been ratified, which was announced late Friday night. The contract was approved with an 87% margin, which is quite high. Probably would have been higher if the writers weren't on strike, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Within this contract, uh, it includes a 13% boost in wages, which is quite sizable, as well as restrictions as to what AI can do within the departments of the DGA, as well as new safety measures on film sets. Still no plans for the WGA talks to resume, and the SAG negotiations are ongoing, though the contract for SAG is due to expire on the 30th of this month. There is also talk that the Emmys might get delayed this year, since unlike the Tonys, they're going to have a harder time not having writers on that award show. So that we'll see. But I doubt anything's going to really change on the writer strike front for another 30, 40 days or so, because I'm basically the only reason they haven't gone back to talks is because they're trying to do the force majeure thing and just wipe out everybody's contracts. So I'm 
pretty sure that's what we're waiting for. So now, with all that taken care of, let's get on to this week's topic. This week, two comedians who created the stoner genre of film and brought weed and anti-establishment humor to the entire world. That's right, we're covering the life and careers of Tommy Chong and Cheech Marin. Thought we'd mix it up a little bit and do a story about people who aren't dead. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. What kind of joint is this, man? Oh, it's a heavy-duty joint, man. Oh, it looks like a toothpick, man. No, it's not a toothpick, man. No, hey, it is a toothpick, man. Oh, man, it's just... It is a toothpick. I must have got it in the other pocket, man. Hold on, man, I got the real shit right here, man. That's my dick. Thomas B. Kin Chong was born on May 24th, 1938 in Alberta, Canada, to a Chinese father who worked as a truck driver and a white Canadian mother who was a waitress. Being the child of an interracial marriage at that particular time would teach the young Chong very early the harsh realities of racism. One of his earliest memories dealing with this was not being invited to a friend's birthday despite living on the same street as them. Turned out, her father was afraid that his daughter would end up like dating or marrying someone of color, and I guess not inviting a child to a birthday party was a way to prevent that from happening. Chong watched his friends at the party from his home's second story window. Him feeling like a bit of an outsider was basically established when he was maybe 10 years old, which is very sad. The family moved to Calgary when Chong was young, ultimately settling in a conservative neighborhood that Chong would later refer to as Dogpatch. The family lived on a fixed income, partially due to his father being wounded in World War II. Chong would drop out of high school at the age of 16 because he had become fairly certain that he was going to be expelled anyway and decided to be the one to leave instead of being the one asked to leave. To pay the bills, he'd play the guitar. He also found that that skill would get him laid, so win-win. By the early 1960s, Chong was playing guitar for a Calgary soul band called The Shades. The Shades relocated to Vancouver, where the band's name would change to Little Daddy and the Bachelors. Together with band member Bobby Taylor, Chong opened a Vancouver nightclub in 1963, which they called Blues Palace. This would be the first of several bars slash clubs Tommy would own throughout his life. Though their band had built up a small following, things began to sour when Chong suggested they rename the band something with several racial slurs that this white girl cannot repeat. Eventually, the band renamed themselves instead to Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's. In 1965, the Vancouver's signed with Gordy Records, which was a part of Motown Records. They recorded a debut album and single, the latter of which was the Tommy Chong co-composition, Does Your Mama Know?, which peaked at number 29 on the Billboard Hot 100. While on tour in Chicago, Illinois with the band, Chong was introduced to the cannabis culture for the first time, partially by being introduced to the comedy of Lenny Bruce, the improv scene down there, and all of this mixed together would leave an indelible mark on the rest of Chong's life. Through this, he learned about the counterculture budding in America and how those in power used marijuana usage, which had become a symbol of rebellion, to jail individuals they saw as troublesome for exorbitant jail terms. 
After the band released two additional singles, Chong and a bandmate missed a Friday night performance to apply for green cards so they could become American citizens. Chong was soon fired for arriving late to another gig, but later when Barry Gordy, their producer, told Chong that he wasn't fired, that it had been a mistake, Chong said he wanted to stay fired. He told Gordy that he intended to become someone like him, not to work for someone like him. Gordy appreciated the candor and gave Chong $5,000 in severance. The band would end up breaking up shortly thereafter anyway. You see, Chong had returned to Canada with an epiphany. He wanted to get into comedy, so with that $5,000, he acquired a strip club, which was also run by his parents, with a desire to turn it into a comedy venue. But rather than fire the exotic dancers working there, he decided to incorporate them into the comedy. This was where the 33-year-old would meet a young Southern California transplant who'd fled to Canada. Richard Anthony Marin was born July 13, 1946, in South Los Angeles, the son of a secretary and a police officer. Marin's nickname Cheech is short for Chicharon, which was given to him by his uncle because he thought his nephew resembled the snack, so no, it was not a compliment. If you don't know what a Chicharon is, it's a fried pork rind. This became Marin's stage name down the line, and it's what we'll call him for this episode, though he still does go by his legal name from time to time as well. During high school, Cheech was a straight-A student, just straight-laced dude, even though he was a bit of a class clown. He attended college at my alma mater, actually, Cal State Northridge. It was while he was in college that Cheech met the second most important collaborator in his early career, marijuana, which, like so many of us, he discovered in college. The former straight-laced young man was amazed that marijuana was nothing like he'd been told growing up. Also, like so many of us, he'd been warned that it would turn him into a heroin addict, thief, or whatever, and ruin your life, and you had the scrambly egg brain, and blah, 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 blah. It also made him wonder, what else was he lied to about? Graduating CSUN as an English major in 1968, Cheech soon auditioned to sing lead for a band. After not being offered the gig, the next day he moved to Vancouver with the help of his pottery teacher in order to evade being drafted in the Vietnam War. His number would ultimately be called in 1970, but Cheech was already in the Great White North working in a remote cabin as a pottery apprentice. Cheech met Chong in early 1969, by which point Cheech was working as a carpet delivery man. The two were introduced by a mutual acquaintance who was an editor for a rock and roll magazine. By this time, a theater group had sprung out of the former strip club called City Works, which was described by those performing in the troupe as hippie burlesque, which is how Chong had designed it. In addition to Chong and the Exotic Dancer Girls being a part of this troupe, the group also included a mime and a guitarist. Chong found Cheech to be, quote, fast and funny, so he hired him as a writer for $5 more a week than he was making doing the whole carpet thing. Hanging out with naked girls and weed sounded a lot more appealing than delivering carpets to Cheech, so he agreed to the terms. Cheech proved to be a very versatile actor and comedian. His character that would soon become world famous, Pedro the Mexican slash Chicano, was Chong's idea, according to Chong, because Cheech was the only individual of Latin descent in town, which meant that any material in that vein was fresh to that audience. Concurrently, Chong was working on his stoner persona, which would eventually be known just as 
Man. Eventually, Pedro and Man would combine on stage, creating a two-man stand-up act in the process. The first time they performed on stage together as these two, they performed for so long that there was no time for the band they were opening for to actually play. City Works disbanded in February 1971, but Cheech and Chung opted to head to the United States doing a West Coast tour of one-night gigs. The two wanted to be famous, so headed to L.A., which was the center of stand-up comedy at the time, in search of fame and fortune. But in these early days, the two struggled financially and were forced to move in with Chong's estranged wife. And as you can imagine, that made for an incredibly tense living situation. Shortly after this, the Vancouver nightclubs Chong owned were forced to close, leaving the struggling comics with no income. Slowly, Cheech and Chong began performing regular gigs at several Southern California clubs. Some performances were better than others. After one particularly disastrous show, the two realized that they needed to create material that spoke to their audiences. Who was their audience? Stoners and rock and roll fiends, primarily. So mining those veins, they further developed and refined their Pedro and Man characters. Their comedic mix of material dealing with weed and music struck gold and would become their calling card. Cheech and Chong had emerged on the scene around the same time as the anti-Vietnam War and counterculture revolution was ramping up, and the two quickly found an audience within that community, becoming spokespersons for this emerging group as well. Having found their audience, they were soon selling out shows, which led to bigger venues, which led to the two quote-unquote being discovered in the old-school way in the early 1970s at the Troubadour, which is a nightclub in Los Angeles. It's also where Elton John got discovered, fun fact. This would lead to a record deal for the two in 1971. Their self-titled debut was loved by critics and audiences alike, peaking at number 28 on the charts. Their debut album featured their Dave bit, which involved a who's on first level of miscommunication, featuring Dave, played by Cheech, on one side of a door, and Chong playing a man inside of an apartment who was too stoned to realize that he needed to let Dave inside. The album was nominated for a Grammy for Best Comedy Recording, the first of six that the pair would get together, and four more very successful albums followed over the next five years. Another fortunate timing for these two was that Hollywood was trying anything and everything to make money, and that would include taking a chance on these two edgy comedians that all the youths seemed to love, or at least one very untapped market of youths. Originally titled The Adventures of Pedro and Man, Cheech and Chong's cinematic debut had anything but an easy road to the silver screen. The film that was eventually called Up in Smoke was originally planned just to be like a compilation of their stand-up bits, as well as popular stuff from their albums, basically just brought to visual life. But instead, they decided to take Pedro and Man on an adventure. Lou Adler was attached to direct the film, who just so happened to be Cheech and Chong's manager and the man who had discovered the duo and helped catapult them towards fame. So if anybody understood them other than the two of them, it would be Lou Adler. There was no formal script for the film, and the movie was almost completely improvised as a result. Paramount gave the trio $1 million to shoot the film over seven weeks. According to Chong, it ended up taking a little bit less than a month. And the film shot in the spring of 1977. When the $1 million proved to not be enough money, Paramount refused to pay the additional $800K needed, so Adler used his own money to finish the film. Up in Smoke told the, sure, 
story of Anthony Mann, a weed-smoking drummer who was told to get a job by sundown or his parents were going to send him to military school. This character was played by Chong, who was almost 40 years old at this point. While hitchhiking, he is picked up by Pedro, a fellow stoner played by Cheech, and the two decide to start a band together after doing drugs, and other Mary Jane-fueled shenanigans ensue. This includes driving a van made entirely of marijuana across the border, and a finale that involves Cheech in a pink girl's ballet costume complete with a tutu rocking out on stage. Michael Eisner, Paramount's president at the time, was not happy with the film after seeing a rough cut and decided to pull the plug. As a result, Adler bought it from the studio. This would turn out to be a big mistake, as test audiences responded very enthusiastically to it. Hearing this, Paramount changed their mind and bought the film back. Up in Smoke released Very Small, with test screenings in August 1978, and later opened in nine theaters in Texas in early September, grossing nearly 350k in its first 10 days. Prior to its official release date, the film had grossed $1.7 million, which was pretty good for the time. Despite critics more or less reviling Up in Smoke, by the end of the first month of its release, the film had grossed $20 million, so it had already made back its budget. Cheech and Chong were a hit. I'm trying to do weed puns, but there are so many. Despite success at the box office, the fact that the movie dealt with marijuana quite extensively led naturally to a lot of people who were very offended. In late October, the U.S. Catholic Conference condemned the film as morally objectionable. And according to Variety at the time, the film was marketed to the quote-unquote grass generation and cited advertising using key art featuring Cheech and Chong rolled into a joint as proof. Remember, this is a very, very anti-drug era we're in right now. This is like the Reagan, like, just say no to drugs era. We're getting, we're getting around there. Paramount was forced to change an advertising slogan for the film from don't go straight to see this movie to it will make you feel very funny because the Motion Picture Association of America, or MPAA, feared that the original slogan encouraged the use of illegal drugs. I mean... If that's what influences you to do drugs, you're either dumb or just looking for someone else to blame. Despite the controversy, Up in Smoke went on to gross $76 million at the domestic box office and over $104 million altogether worldwide. It even had midnight screenings at the Cannes Film Festival in 1979. It was an instant cult classic. I don't even know if you can call it a cult classic, but it was at that level. It was very, very, very popular with a very fringe group of society. So it was considered kind of like an offbeat film, even though it made like real time money. The duo next made Cheech and Chong's next movie in 1980 for Universal Pictures. The two played characters that shared their actual names, and the film was directed by Chong and written by Cheech and Chong. The film basically just continues on from the last one, just two ne'er-do-wells looking for weed and getting into weird situations, and there's always some kind of music element involved as well. Chong also directed their third film, Nice Dreams, which they did for Columbia, and that one released in the summer of 1981. In this one, the duo had an ice cream truck business, which they sold weed out of. 
Cheech and Chong's next movie and Nice Dreams did well enough at the box office. It wasn't hard to, given how cheap it was to make those films, but neither outdid the first in terms of box office. They were seen as, you know, lesser films. But since the movies were dirt cheap to make and made decent profit for the studios, they could always find someone else to make the next one. The comedy duo's next film, Things Are Tough All Over, released in 1982. This film was far more story-oriented compared to the previous three and less weed-motivated. The following year, Cheech and Chong returned with Still Smokin', a loose collection of sketches and concert footage that finds the stoners in Amsterdam for a film festival. Critics were never kind to any of these films, but the fans stood by the duo enough to get the next film funded. But, like with anything, that was about to change. Cheech and Chong's next film was a drastic and questionable departure from their norm, which left even their most loyal fans at a loss. This film was called The Corsican Brothers, which released in 1984. The film was a spoof of Alexandre Dumas' classic story of the same name that deals with brothers who can feel each other's physical pain. It's also a period piece, so that was a choice. The film failed to make back even half of its budget, and it would be Cheech and Chong's final official theatrical feature. In 1985, the pair went back to their roots and released the album and video Get Out of My Room. This would be the duo's final release before the two decided to part ways. After nearly two decades, ego and creative differences, dating back to at least nice dreams, had soured Cheech and Chong's friendship to the point of no return. Although the two had always managed to get past their creative and personal differences up to that point, the tension of working together had at last become untenable. In his autobiography, Cheech blames, in part, Chong's quote-unquote inflated ego for the split. According to Cheech, quote, As we went along and got more success, Tommy wanted to be everything. He wanted to be the director and the sole writer. That tension kept building until he didn't want me to write anymore. Chong's refusal to participate in the recording of the song Born in East L.A. would be the final straw for Cheech. Ironically, that would win the two a Grammy, despite Chong having nothing to do with the song, but they were both credited on the entire album, so he wanted a Grammy for something he didn't do. Decades later, Chong would more or less agree with Cheech's assessment of what led to their breakup, saying, quote, I got to be a bit of a megalomaniac when it came to the movies. Once you become a director, your word's God, and it's hard to lose that. Cheech's Born in East L.A., which had been a parody of Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, was a huge hit despite Chong not appearing on the track. Based on the success of the song and music video that would be shot to accompany it, Universal contacted Cheech and suggested he write a film about a Mexican-American who is mistakenly deported. Cheech jumped at the chance and ended up writing, directing, and starring in his first major project without his former comedic partner. The film did pretty good, but more than anything, what it did do was establish Cheech as a talent that could stand on his own. He became a highly sought-after voice actor and was given more and more varied roles in other films as the years went by. By the late 1990s, Cheech had moved away from the drug persona that had made him a star in the first place. He didn't alienate himself from it, he had just done many other things. And a new generation of fans would come to know him for his work on the TV show Nash Bridges. That was how 
how I personally got to know him as a, a human actor, because I'm pretty sure my first exposure to his work at all was as one of the hyenas in Lion King. But, you know, you don't think about that when you're a kid. That and, of course, he was Uncle Felix in Spy Kids. So for those of you that are older, if you're wondering how the millennials know Cheech and Chong, it's it's Uncle Felix from Spy Kids, the hyena and us sitting with you watching reruns of Nash Bridges. That's how we know who Cheech Marin is. <laughs> Tommy Chong took a different path, returning to the stage as a solo stand-up and marijuana advocate. Unlike Cheech, Chong continued to use versions of his stoner persona and made the 1990 comedy Far Out Man. Chong stayed pretty under the radar after that until he was cast as the stoner hippie Leo on that 70s show starting in 1999. This was viewed as a comeback of sorts, but the return to the limelight was a short one. On September 11th, 2003, Chong Glass slash Night Dreams, a company founded by Chong and his son, was implicated in two investigations aimed at businesses selling drug paraphernalia. They made very nice glass bongs. In an effort to keep his son and wife out of jail, Chong and his lawyers arranged for a plea deal, which would find the comedian admitting to one count of conspiracy to distribute drug paraphernalia and keep his wife and son just completely away from trouble. Unfortunately, the comedian was unable to negotiate for public service and house arrest and was sentenced to nine months in prison. Of the 55 individuals charged within this entire bust, it wasn't just Chong's company that got busted, but he he was the only defendant with no prior convictions to do actual jail time. So, you know, knowing that, knowing his background, he was more than likely made an example of given his past as a super famous stoner, which was an argument many people made, including his lawyers, at the time of his sentencing. Chong made a documentary called A.K.A. Tommy that showed the hypocrisy of the bust that got him into all this trouble, especially considering that the country was at war at the time and people making bongs, they weren't selling drugs, they were just making bongs, were getting thrown in jail and like publicly ostracized. And yes, it was illegal, but it was never really cracked down upon. None of these people were warned. They were just kind of like, hey, don't do it. It was very, very sketchy, the whole thing. And, you know, just in kind of a way, Tommy was kind of being publicly punished for, quote unquote, exposing people to drugs. Like, come on. I know I'm trying to keep my opinions out of this, but this the whole thing is ridiculous. They're selling bongs. And then like all the like, sorry. And then like all the senators were like acting like they did something. I'm like, you you busted people for selling bongs. Like, congrats, buddy. Like you didn't like do anything about drugs whatsoever. And it's freaking weed. But that's a whole other issue. Like weed is so mild um, compared to other drugs. It's it's more mild than booze. I will say that. Like, come on. And there are plenty of other ways to smoke weed other than a bong. So it didn't stop anybody from doing any kind of drugs. Anyway, this was 20 years ago. It's a very different mindset now, <laughs> I suppose. The controversy of all this lost Chong his gig on that 70s show, but he would make occasional appearances once the dust settled. I just remember everybody making jokes about how, like, the guy who famously played a stoner got in trouble for selling things for weed. Like, duh. 
Once he was out of jail in December 2004, Chong was set to appear in an off-Broadway show entitled The Marijuana Logs, which was a parody of the Vagina Monologues. But his parole officer would stop the whole show and a tour that they had been planning was also canceled as audience members were smoking pot during performances, which was a violation of Chong's parole and he could have gotten thrown back in jail for it. In 2006, Chong would publish a memoir about his experiences in jail and his exploration of meditation called The I Chong, Meditations from the Joint. Chong has fought two bouts of cancer, the first being prostate in 2012 and rectal cancer in 2015. He has become a huge advocate of using cannabis products in addition to other treatments to help with the effects of a cancer diagnosis and its subsequent treatment. Now, the complete breakup of Cheech and Chong was not a long one, and in 1992, the two even worked together for the first time, voicing characters in the animated film Fern Gully, though they very likely did not record these together. But Chong also made an appearance in Nash Bridges in 1997, so obviously things had mellowed out by then. Again, no pun in- There's so many weed puns. My goodness. <laughs> the, duo, the duo had plans to reunite for another film, but Chong's legal troubles prevented that from happening. When he got released, Cheech and Chong tried to resume production on their reunion film, but it was canceled in September of 2005. Oh, they also did a, uh, a South Park episode where they played these two guys like in a head shop and everybody in town gets like super into holistic stuff. So they end up selling them all this weird shit, even though they're trying to tell them, like, we're not Native American. Like, they're basically playing, like, Pedro and the Man, like, versions of that. And um, they eventually end up making something called Cherokee hair tampons, which is just absolutely hilarious. Again, like the Ferngully one, they didn't record together, but they were appearing together at things, which is a good sign. In September 2008, Cheech and Chong reunited for the Light Up America comedy tour, and in March 2009, they recorded two shows at the Majestic Theater in San Antonio, which was edited into a special that was released on DVD. So not a movie, but a a stand-up special for them. In 2013, the two lent their voices for Cheech and Chong's animated movie, which animated some of their most famous comedy bits. Since 2014, the two have said that they are working on a reunion film as their former personas. The two continue to make the occasional appearance together and at least publicly appear to be super buddy-buddy once more. They are both still actively working in Hollywood, most recently appearing together at the 2022 MTV Video Music Awards to present the Global Icon Award to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Cheech and Chong, despite being over 30 years removed from the heyday of their iconic personas and being in their 70s and 80s, respectively, continued to be linked to the genre that made them famous. They remain cult icons, public advocates for various causes, and pioneers of an oft-looked-down-upon community. Hey, man. Hey. Oh, hey, man. What's up? Wait, what are you doing, man? Oh, man, I'm trying to write a song about Santa Claus, man. Hey, I played with those dudes, man. What? Santa Claus? Yeah, the salsa band. No. From Venezuela. What? Fifteen guys, horns, you know. No, man, Santa Claus is not a group, man. Money broke up, yeah. You can't make money with fifteen dudes, man. Good music, though, man. Shit, I love salsa. Santa Claus is not a group, man. Santa Claus is one guy. 
One dude? One dude. You know, he's got like a, a like a, a red velvet suit and black patent leather boots. Oh, the rapper. Yeah, I played with him too, man. Yeah, he said he was 50 Cent's cousin, you know? But he rapped so bad, man, we used to call him Nickel. <laughs> he was good, though. He had a lisp and a stutter, man. Oh, I remember that guy. Yeah, 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 that's him, man. No, man, Santa Claus is not a rapper, man. You don't know who Santa Claus is? Well, I'm not from here, man. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, well, where, where are you from? Hoboken. Hoboken. <laughs> well, that explains that shit, man. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterboxed account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. You can also see what I really think of the films that the company I work for release. Shh, don't tell the church. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that'd be a huge help. If I could get a little love on Spotify, that'd be great. I'd very much appreciate it. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate that. I've also got the buy me a coffee. I did coffee from home because I was rudely woken up at 6 a.m. by the new building manager moving in and deciding that they needed to hammer pictures into the wall on the wall that is where my bed is. So that was super appreciated. Luckily, they're not repeatedly scraping on the wall like they were last week. So recording was a lot easier this week. Um, Yeah. So I made coffee at home and I made myself a cute little charcuterie board for lunch to make myself feel better because I deserve a treat. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. July is a five Sunday month and next weekend is the 4th of July in the States. Usually I do the last Sunday off, but since it's a holiday and I think I'm going to need a little bit more time on next month's episodes, I'm just going to take it next week, have my three-ish, five-ish, whatever-ish day weekend. But the week after that, we're going to do something which I think is going to be a little bit fun, which is why I also want to spend a little bit more time on it, as we're going to go into some of the most famous Hollywood myths and legends. I'm very excited. So yeah, that's what we'll be back with in a couple of weeks. So Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. See clearly now the rain. <laughs> hey, how long does this shit last? <laughs> and what is your name, sir? <laughs>